Today, we've got Ted Bainbridge, who is the president and CEO of Build Magazine. This is a high-end publication that showcases and highlights custom homes and high levels of craftsmanship and construction, and it is some really beautiful stuff. And so Ted, as the president, is interacting, and this is the world he lives in, and these, these types of contractors, these types of material suppliers. So he's got some great insight on all of these topics, as well as a bunch of other things, just kind of general, positive, uh, good advice. And this guy has... Um, God, he's just exactly the right type of motivational and got a positive outlook that uh, just I would think would just lead, could lead and motivate anybody to achieve success. So I really enjoyed speaking with him and I'm going to do it again because like I said, I, his podcast and his show and his persona personality, these are the kind of people that I like having around me because it feels you can't help but have it rub off. So with no further ado, oh, actually one item of further ado, which is our sponsor, which is Essential Craftsman Academy. That is our membership site. It is a forum. It's our Discord server. We've got a course in there about YouTube, about how to make videos, a course about hiring a contractor. Our blacksmithing course is in there. We've got employee training material in there. And we've just got a great community of, uh, of like-minded individuals. And we have bi-monthly shop talks where you can talk to my dad, ask questions, and, and really kind of get to know each other and, and look for answers to the problems or ideas or whatever it is you have going on. So join us there. I'll link in the description. And now with no more adieus, Ted Bainbridge from Build Magazine. give some background on, we're going to talk primarily about construction and high-end homes and th this type of um, thing, but I, I'm curious about the print industry because I kind of was under the assumption that the internet was just wrecking print. And then here you come along and create Build Magazine and it's it's amazing and doing great. So what what is going on there? What was your background kind of before that? And could you shine some light on, on uh, or give some perspective on that? So... So you're right. Uh, the internet is having an effect. Most publishers, I believe, personal opinion, is they're too lazy. So they take shortcuts and it diminishes the quality of their product. So now all of a sudden you get these magazines and they used to be thick. Now they're thin. The design is lousy. The paper is lousy because they're having to cut costs in order to mm -hmm. survive. Where as soon as you start doing that, you cannot cut costs enough to be successful. I uh, I worked for a development in Big uh, in um, Big Fork, Montana, which is Flathead Valley area, not far from Kalispell, yeah. not far from Whitefish. And this developer, his partner, the CFO, was the CFO of General Mills, the um, wow. uh, the food company, right? And this is 2008. These guys are hemorrhaging money. It's a real estate development and it's a very high end one. And we were the marketing company. And I remember talking to the CFO and he goes, he goes, you can only cut costs so much before you have to grow top end revenue. So, so bad magazines, the internet has killed them. Good magazines, people still want to sit down with a cup of coffee or a glass of wine, whatever, and go through something, it's print is tactile. And our, our whole mission with Build Magazine was to inspire wealthy people building or renovating high-end homes. Hmm. That's it. And you do that by having great photography so that when you're sitting through it, and Nate, I don't care if I'm talking to a 30-year-old or a 60-year-old, they still go, oh yeah. man, that looks great. Oh, that looks great. And it gets your brain going, right? It gets you to salivate kind of in the back of your, yeah. your throat. And that's, that's an emotion. Whereas the internet, think of Instagram, right? You're on your phone and you're clicking like this. How long are you actually spending looking at that photo? Oh, that's a really cool photo. What's next? And then to go back, you're not going to go back. You're just going to kind of keep yeah. swiping left. So, so that's kind of where we've been able to succeed is we stuck to our guns. Like we don't let realtors in there. 
We don't let jewelry stores. We don't let resorts, plastic surgeons, none of that stuff. We're just laser focused. And I think that's another success, whether it be in publishing or any business, is stick to your guns. Stick to your core product. Don't get so diluted that you start confusing the consumer as to who are you. I love that expression, stick to your guns. And in a luxury building magazine, that would be, I take it, contractors and, uh, I don't know, appliance companies and anything related to construction. Is that right? Yeah. So contractors, uh, so you've got your general contractor, you've got your architects, your interior designers, the iron worker, the masonry, the appliance companies, the flooring companies. And with Build Magazine, what we did was, and I don't know why I did it, but um, the last house that we built in Bend was with Jim Yozam from Pack West, and Jim's an incredible builder, uh, does great work. And I went and I picked his brain when we came up with this idea. And I go, "Hey, we don't want the box stores in there. We don't want the production home companies uh, in there. We just want the high-end people in the trade." And he goes, "Teddy, I love the idea, but how are you going to make sure you don't have the box stores?" And I said, simple, we're going to do it all by referral. So, Nate, everybody in our magazine is referred by their peers. Mm. So it's kind of you're in the cool kids club. So it kind of and I hear I did a podcast earlier this morning with this interior design outfit out of Denver. And she goes, you've created an exclusive club where it validates when they're in your magazine. It kind of validates who they are. You know, they've reached a certain pinnacle of success. So Which I was know two contractors in particular who in the within the last few months have told me something along the lines of, oh, this is the kind of work I'm doing right now, but I'd really like to do a little more high-end stuff and work with a different type of clientele. These are probably the types of contractors and people in your magazine. So a lot of our audience yeah. is contractors or maybe they're tradesmen today, but you know, building a business is in their future once they get their ducks in a row or, or whatever. So what, what have you learned from all of these contractors and designers? What type of person, what type of mindset, what are they doing that is allowing them to serve these, you know, this higher end clientele well, or maybe the question is what, what is the higher end clientele looking for in a contractor that, that people should uh, iron out? So great question. Uh, something that I ask a lot of people So Brad Levitt, who was on your show last year with AFT Construction in Scottsdale, is a great example of that. Brad's 41 or 42 years old, and he he cut his teeth on a resort called the Mona Lucia, and he was a his his uh, father was an electrician in in uh, San Diego. So Brad started out as an electrician, and now he is a contractor, and he has stepped it up year after year after year. Part of it is doing a really good job with the stuff that you're doing. Uh, Part of it is taking on jobs that you might not have thought of, but that would lead you in the right direction. And part of it also is luck. I mean, but the harder you work, the luckier you get. And it's an evolution. Taking great photography of what you do is so important for allowing that potential client that you will build for to have the vision and the confidence in you that you can pull off um, what you're doing. Now, Nate, you can't go from building a track home to building a $10 million house overnight. There is, I truly believe that there is a process. There's an apprenticeship where maybe you, you go for you know, you're, you're in track homes, but you want to get to the next level. So now you start getting smaller custom homes or maybe a million dollar custom home and then elevate that to a $2 million custom home. Brad just finished one that was 15 million and Brad's 41. And, but I told Brad, cause he's actually now started to build our house in Scottsdale and a year and a half ago when I met him or two years ago when I met him, I go, how can anybody not like you? And I met him through a conference, like a Builder 20 group. I go, first of all, you're good looking. You're in great shape. You're a great athlete. You don't oversell yourself. The quality of photography that you've got in your portfolio, stuff that you've done is fantastic. 
I said, how, if somebody's sitting down with you, why would they go to anybody else? And he just laughs because he's super humble. But that it's all those building blocks. And, and too often I find that people want to go from, from zero to 10 million and they don't want to do anything in between. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of yourself. Look at the stuff that you've done and probably, and I don't know enough, but if you look back five years, What's the quality of the stuff that you did five years ago compared to yeah, what you do today? Yeah, it's probably way better because yeah. you learn, right? Yeah, you're right. But it's been a, a a one step in front of the other progression instead of like a now I have this tool, therefore my stuff is better. No, no, no. It's been just kind of one step getting better at a time. So you're you're advising. You'd tell a young or even an experienced contractor, but one place they get up their game would be taking professional photographs of their job before they leave that's kind of low-hanging fruit hands down hands down and and understand understand what is that client the client that you want what are they going to look at when they look at the photography because that's what you have to sell because it's all built on reputation most of the people that these high-end people deal with um, they deal with, uh, and I'm going to tell networking, don't let me forget this, but, but they're going to deal with you, um, because of the body of work that you already did. So they're going to have the confidence. Okay. You can build a house like that for me. So, um, networking is another key one. So if you want to be building for those nice homes, start talking to the architects. Start networking with the interior designers. You don't know where your leads are going to come from. And people are going to say, hey, listen, I I talked to this guy and he's an up and comer. Everybody likes up and comers. They don't want to be a guinea pig. Yeah. Right. And so we're willing to give people a shot, but I don't want to, I don't want you learning on my dime. So that's where the networking and the and the trust and the proof, and then you do a really good job. You start to build a reputation for, you know, he used to do smaller stuff, and now this is what he's doing, or what she's doing, because I'm seeing more women in the uh, in the building industry as well, which I think some, is super. Some cool. trades have a challenge because while their craft is happening, it's still a job site. It doesn't you know? There's no like furniture in the house, and those photos look more like a job site like for example a tile layer when he's when he's done with his shower install it's difficult to get like a professional picture that really pops because there's no mirror in the bathroom so so what i tell him to do is uh if you've done a good job for the gc and the general contractor loves you which he should you want them to be your best friend is to say hey man are you going to photograph this house okay can i chip in a few hundred bucks when you are getting photos done and can that photographer take photos of yeah. the shower and the, and the, and the general contractor is more than happy, Nate, if you've done a good job, they are more than happy yeah. to look after you because without you, they don't have a business either. That's a good point. It's also, I sometimes, it's hard to ask people for something, you know, cold call, but contractors get beat up a lot. Like, Hey, can you come back and fix this one thing? And people are taking often from a contractor. That's fine. Um, that's always an opportunity to ask something in return. Like, yeah, I can do that. No problem. Also, while I got you on the phone, I'm going to send a photographer over to that job. Is that, it's almost like you can give and take a little more. And if you have to take some, you know, ask, uh, that might be an opportunity to do that when they're beating you up anyways. So, so with the higher end homes, and I think this applies to anything, because photography really is the body of work and good photos. I literally, another thing we talked about on this podcast I just did with this, these, this interior design coach was getting, getting her clients, the interior designers to understand the value of good, good photos, because there's a difference between good photos and you grabbing your iPhone and taking photos. Those are garbage. And they're not going to be properly lit. And then you look at really good photos and you go, yeah. okay, well, that's the difference, right? And now all of a sudden, people become less price sensitive when they have in, uh, incredible trust in your ability. The first word out of their mouth isn't going to be, well, how much is this right. going to cost, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So um, 
the general contractor in most instances, when you're talking about a high-end home, like I'm talking million plus, I'm not talking, I, I mean, 10 million, sure, or 50 million, sure. But even at a million, two million, three million dollars, in the contract with the client, most of the time there is a provision for them to come back and take photos. I think on the lower end, on the production stuff, you still ought to have professional photos taken because once again, it's your body of work. Um, So you've, between the contractors, a lot of which that you work with, I'm sure are super successful in their own right, but, but also um, the, I'd say the, I don't know if, if you refer to these as your customers, but the, the purchasers of your magazine, you know, the, the wealthy clientele who are um, absorbing this information, you've probably rubbed shoulders and kind of yep. been around these types of, of successful people quite a bit. So there's certainly some, uh, people have an idea of like the wealthy of, they might be one way. I've actually found that m- most of them, have got there by working hard over the years. And so I feel like I can relate and get along with them way better than I have always thought. Because once I meet the person, they tell me, oh yeah, I started my business when I was 18 and I was da da da. And I'm kind of like, oh wow. Yeah, this is pretty neat. So anyways, can you talk about that a little bit? What are these types of people like and what have you learned from them? And are, are there any like misconceptions? Yeah. Uh, awesome question. Uh, most of us, because we started with nothing, uh, we're, most of us are humble. Now there are some that, you know, they're bigger than life and they've got huge egos, but I find those to be the rarity, not the norm. And so now all of a sudden they started with nothing. And what they appreciate is they appreciate somebody working hard. They appreciate somebody coming up with an idea because it takes them back to their roots. Another thing that I find is, and think of it from your own, um, your own mindset, you know, you've got over a million followers on your YouTube videos. You and your wife and your family have done an incredible job with what you have done. But the fun times are thinking back to how bad things were or those the dumb mistakes that you made. And you look back on them, you learn more from those than, hey, listen, we've arrived. First of all, we never arrive because um, there is no finish line. These people are as normal as all of us. And, and as, as I meet wealthier and wealthier and wealthier people, at the end of the day, they put our, their pants on just like we do. They have, they have, you know, they want to work on their health just like all of us do. And they're, for the most part, normal people that just had a good idea. And with a little luck and a lot of hard work, they succeeded. We, we do a lot of our podcasts is about these incredible stories of the American dream. And these are all, they're dealing with multimillionaires and billionaires and they're just normal folks. So don't be intimidated by them because they're just normal folks. Now don't waste their time. Well, um, you, you said luck a couple times and I know that's super case by case, but are there any, how, how, what does luck often look like? Is it like meeting the right people at the right time or just kind of being in an industry at the right moment or what? What types of luck? So I, I use the term luck as, as something that you have to be in the right place at the right time. But one word I didn't use that is more important is preparation. You've got to be prepared. So I'll go back to the football analogy. So Tom Brady throws passes, goes to practice, throws several hundred passes every day. And then he gets to the Super Bowl and he is so prepared that when he throws a pass to Gronk, you have to have some luck that the defender doesn't do something. But because there's so much incredible preparation that goes into it, guess what? They make the catch, yeah. they win the Super Bowl. And he's done it so many times. Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan. You know, these guys always work incredibly hard at what their craft is so that they become experts. You don't become an expert by watching YouTube videos. You don't become an expert by watching TV. You don't become an expert by sitting in the stands. You become an expert by practicing and participating. Practice, 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 practice. Now, all of a sudden, when you're under the gun, pressure hits. It's it's a reflex motion. I've always thought of luck in business um, may, a little bit more like fishing, where, like, sure, you might have got lucky and caught a big fish, and you certainly didn't, like, get in there yeah. and grab the fish and hook them on your hook. But 
it can appear that way because you just like happen to go to the river and you're fishing and wow, what do you know? But but what you don't see is the, the fact that you're sitting there waiting anyways. Oh, what do you know? I happen to have this bait in the line in this water. And I, a lot of the success, successful people I know, it was a little more like that. Like maybe they got lucky and met this certain person or got this one client at this right moment. But the fact that they were open for business the day before that and, you know, doing their, the legwork is what actually caused that to fall on their lap and they were able to snatch it. You know, it wouldn't have happened had they not done the preparation. Like you're saying you moved from Canada to Bend. Number one, um, Bend has changed over the years quite a bit and you could talk to that, but, but you mentioned the American dream. Does that mean something extra special to you kind of coming to America uh, later in your life? Number one and number two, does that overlap with Build Magazine and the, kind of what you're working on these days with your podcast and, and working with all these contractors? So the cool thing about America is any knucklehead can make it. And if you do work hard, you do have an idea, you do take a chance, anybody can succeed in America. That's not necessarily the case in other countries around the world. Uh, there are a lot of countries that there is the class system. So if you're born into a specific class, say it's middle class, it's very hard to get to the, um, call it aristocratic or the wealthy or however you want to do it. Um, but in America, we're built on people that started with nothing, people that were flat broke, people that came from the ghetto. I've got a really good friend of mine, uh, Byron, and Byron grew up in downtown Atlanta in the ghetto. and. Um, he, when he went to school, he had um, a bunch of friends that would say, hey, Byron, let's, uh, let's go hang out tonight. And he goes, nope, because he knew that that was trouble. And so he played five varsity sports his senior year so that he would be always busy so that when his friends would say, hey, let's go hang out, he'd go, no, because he, didn't, he knew exactly what hanging out meant. And a lot of those friends didn't see their wow. 21st birthday. So Byron goes from poverty. He joins the military, goes in the military. He becomes um, VP of uh, GE, one of, VP of sales for GE Capital. And he retired at 45. And he's a good buddy of mine. And now he mentors a lot of the NFL players because he goes, here you have these young black athletes. He goes, and they're not taught the skills on now all of a sudden you got all this money, but that doesn't really, if you're not taught the skills, you're just going to get yourself into a world of trouble with that money. And Byron is such an inspiration to me um, as far as what he's done with his life. That's the American dream to me. There is no, nobody's saying to you, you can't do it. And Canada is a great country. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's beautiful. It's a great country. America just lets anybody succeed if they want to. Um, it's a choice. I know there's are people who would could describe all the reasons why that's not the case anymore, but I can't help but feel like just choosing to believe that you can achieve anything in and of itself is so powerful and you like just not focusing on all the reasons that might keep you back and just just choosing to be like, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to believe this, what you described can be quite, um, uh, valuable and it, it can be a quite a powerful ingredient to achieving success just from your own mindset, right? It's all the six inches yeah. between our ears. I think the American dream is bigger today than it was 20 years ago when we first came here. I think there's more opportunity because too many people through this pandemic The government has thrown money at them, so they just think that they're successful because they're so smart. No, they're successful because the the government has artificially inflated everything. Uh, You've probably heard that the best time to start a business is in a recession because that's when the the people that just – they just happen to succeed because they were in business at the right time. But they don't really know how to operate a business. The people that have gone through a recession or started in a recession, those are the ones that work hard. Those are the ones that really refine their craft. Those are the ones that talk to their customers to find out truly what the needs are. 
So, so what's going on in this country right now? We can all decide to be a participant in our lives, or we can all decide to be a spectator. That is our choice. Nobody tells us. The government doesn't tell us. School teachers don't tell us. If you've got that in here, you're going to succeed. That has never occurred to me, but the more I think about it, I think you might be onto something. Think about 20 years ago or maybe 50 years ago, how much more competition there was of ambitious people starting businesses because that's how it was done versus today. There's probably a pretty small number of people starting their drywall company today versus 20 years ago. Well, that means less competition and 20 years from now, you know, I mean, somebody's going to be the king of drywall in wherever the Dallas Fort Worth area. Yeah. And, and, yep. and so that's a really interesting way to think about it. You know, I guess just less competition than ever before for people willing to hustle and pay the price. Yeah. And it's, and it's more fun. Like here, here's another thing that I'm a firm believer. Do you read you know, many books? I'd read a, a few, not as I used to read more. I don't read as much now because I have four kids, but I, I like it when I do. <laughs> so I'm not a voracious reader at all. My wife, my wife is, and I'm not. And I got involved through a friend of mine in a CEO coaching company to help better our, you know, we're, we're having some success with what we're doing, but we want to do a better job. We want to grow because if you're not, I'm also a firm believer, if you're not uncomfortable, you're not growing. So if you're comfortable, nothing's changing. You're not pushing yourself. You're not going to grow. So this lady I just talked to, Gail Doby in Denver, she reads about two books a week. And and I might write, I might read two, <laughs> two books a year. Yeah. To be, right. to be honest, wow. two books a year. So I've started to read more with this CEO coach because it's time to ramp up what we're doing because we want to grow the business because we've had some success and we want to elevate what we're doing, right? It's amazing, Nate, when you start reading. Um, now, I'm talking personally, I read mm -hmm. business books, okay? When you start reading, it gives you more optimism, when you start learning, you become less trapped in the outside environment and more stimulated to, okay, that's a good way of looking at things. I've got an idea I think might work. And then having the guts to, to actually go out and implement the idea. And sometimes you're going to fail. But when you fail, you learn something. And those are the best stories that you go back and you tell your kids or your wow. grandkids, right? You don't tell them about, oh, yeah, yeah, you know what? I did this and I did that. No, I got kicked in the head. Yeah. I fell down. We went bankrupt and we still fought back and look at where we are today. Back about building a little bit. You have traveled a lot. And I know your previous uh, publication was uh, about traveling. And, and now that you're more involved with building and construction, at least um, yeah. in, in this regard, can you talk about or think of things related to construction and building that you've seen around the world or that's interesting. I've only traveled a small amount, but even when I go to other parts of the country, the U S I'm always just kind of amazed how different, uh, things are, you know, um, even down to like materials. Like when I was in Florida, I was amazed that like the, a lot of the gravel has seashells in it, you know, and that's like road base and stuff, things, things like that. Yep. Like, Whoa, that's crazy. Not to mention Europe and the construction techniques. So what kind of things have you seen in your travels that you can appreciate now that you are, uh, you know, so involved with construction and building? Or, or when you go to Florida, they build houses out of cinder blocks, not, not wood because, I mean, obviously there's wood in there, but the foundation is cinder blocks because of the, the storms, the right. weather that they get. Right. Um, so this morning when I was doing this podcast with these ladies, my podcaster said, uh, when we're done, he goes, he goes, you, because you have traveled so much, you don't have many dead spots in your conversations with your guests. Because sometimes you know what it's like. You're talking to somebody and all of a sudden they just leave you hanging. <laughs> yeah. And now you're just scrambling, trying to fill, okay, what am I going to ask now? And your yeah. brain's trying to rack it up, right? Yeah. Um, I think travel does a couple of things, um, and I'll, re 
I'll equate it to building in a second, but I'll equate it to the American dream more importantly. When we immigrated from Canada, we got a green card. Every time we were, and so we were not citizens for 15 years, and then we became Americans. But every time I would come back through customs, and they said, welcome home, even as a green card holder, it's still, as I say it to you now, I still get emotional because this is such a great country. If we all would travel more, get outside of America, the rest of the world is does not operate like this. In every country, we talk about the problems that we have with, with different races and ethnicities and cultures and all that stuff. It is not just America that has those problems. They have it in China. They have it in Korea. They have it in Russia. They have it everywhere you go. So I think that we would appreciate what we've got so that we look at the good of what we've got. It's very easy, even in relationships, you start looking at the bad of somebody and you start picking them apart. Well, that's the deterioration of everything, right? Mm -hmm. But if you look at the good and the benefit, you go, oh man, we're not perfect. Nobody is. God didn't make us perfect. You know, God made us with imperfections. So let's not pick them apart because we all have them, right? Yeah. Now, as far as building is concerned, when you travel all over this great country, and I've been to all 50 states, I've been to all 10 provinces in Canada, we've been to five continents. When you travel, even in the U.S., the building techniques and the, the building materials that they use, depending on weather, because there's that thing called rain, mm -hmm. and it destroys everything because water follows gravity, and nothing can stop it, right? You deal with it. I remember watching one of your YouTube videos, and, and you had dug out the foundation, or a neighbor had dug out the foundation, and they had a bit of a mudslide. Yeah. I mean, not a major yeah. one, but a yeah. little one, right? Oh, yeah. And it's, and it's because of water. Yeah. When I was doing that uh, podcast with that guy, Eden uh, Marshall from Grand Architecture in Vancouver, he was telling a story about water and how water is just, it's a nuisance. Yeah. I mean, we need it, but it's a nuisance when it comes to building. Yeah. And he also talked about the building codes from 20 years ago and what they've learned and how stricter they are now because they're constantly learning what effects water has on construction and how it can make, you know, all of a sudden you're on quicksand, but you thought it was on, you know, a solid foundation. So it's just interesting to see the different materials that people use um, in different areas. Also, from architectural design standpoint, out here in the West, everything is an open concept, whereas back East, you still have a lot of homes that are built with formal dining rooms, formal living rooms, um, seating, sitting areas where, you know, a library or something like that, and there are smaller rooms. I remember when we built our first house in Bend, um, I would look at the floor plans and there would be floor plans and broken top that were 4,600 square feet, three bedrooms. And I go, in a house that big? Hmm. You know, I was used to 2,500 square feet with five bedrooms because all the bedrooms were small. Yeah. Is that still how it's done back east compared to the, the west or has it kind of equalized? Not exclusively, but yes, to a large degree. You'll walk into these homes, and they're huh. they're all more structured than the open concept that we have out west. I mean, you do have some that are open concept, but a lot large majority of them are still um, still built that way. And we don't have. You go to Texas, it's all brick. You go to Georgia, it's all brick. You go to South Carolina, it's all brick. So the outside of the houses are all brick, whereas here it's mostly wood. Yeah, or stucco. Right. That's you don't see stucco back east. Yeah, that is so interesting. Um, I had uh, Matt Reisinger on our on our show. He's a kind of a high end builder in Texas, and he has a big YouTube channel. He's he lived in Portland, and he talked about speaking of water, how he built in Portland, Oregon, and where it rains all the time. And he figured he had water and how to like shed a roof just mastered because um this is my home court advantage, you know, rainwater. And he went to Texas, and I. I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but he built a house and it had like trouble because he applied the building methods 
from Portland to Texas. It rains in Texas also, but it's just different, you know, and for whatever reason, it didn't apply. And so that was really interesting that even, yeah, just that point, how different things are done to accomplish the same goal for, you know, even like what, it might just be water, but you know, the, the heat in Texas causes, you know, expansion contraction that affects the waterproofing and membranes in a way that Portland doesn't have to deal with their other weather, you know, storms and hurricanes and tornadoes and all these kinds of things. So it's really all about the, the location. So, so you think about that and I, I don't know Matt's uh, specifics on what you're talking about, but you think about this in Portland, the rain is gentle. It's soft. You don't get flooding very often, but it just rains constantly. Yeah. Right. So you'll get a rain like in December or January where it'll rain for days and days and days, but it's not a deluge. Then you go to Texas and when it rains, because it rains a lot, but you will get actual flooding. So it's a monsoon yeah. that hits. Yeah, exactly. And it's a, just a wrecking ball on. Oh, uh, on and water. Stuff. You know what water's like. Yeah. Water is a hassle. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, um, I wish it was more I wish it was more quantified and there was data about how much damage dollar wise rain and flooding um, puts onto contractors. When I was building my storage facility, which we made some videos about, it was the first like building permit I had pulled and I was kind of doing it myself. We had a hundred year flood event while I was in the middle of my dirt work and I had trenches open and it cost me what was a lot of money to me, several thousand dollars to redo a bunch of trenches and electrical that had like come out of the ground. But at that same, in that same weather event, the airport was doing a big parking lot kind of addition at the same time. And I happened to go there and I was feeling really sorry for myself. Like, of course I get this, this weather that just like wrecked my project and blew up my like expectations of budget. And then I drove through their job site and was like, Oh wow, this is uh I don't feel so bad for myself anymore. You know, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of like work they had to redo that basically contractors or I guess insurance companies probably are involved with mitigating some of that risk. But point is, uh, there's a price to pay when the water comes at the if it's not prepared for. Yeah. Yeah, I uh we had to buy which I don't remember and I and I talked to Jim he goes, oh no, Teddy, you had to buy that. Uh, but he he said we just factored it into the into the bid. But we had to buy insurance so that if something went wrong with the house while they're building this house, and the insurance was like eight thousand dollars, that was the premium, and to to protect in case there was a fire or there was a flood or there was something during the construction uh, process, which logically makes sense to me. But it's another one of those costs. It's kind of like it might only cost you a few thousand dollars, but you didn't plan on it. You didn't expect it. Yeah. And it's still a hassle because it's a few thousand bucks out the door. Yeah. Um, related to travel, when I was in high school, I spent a year in Germany as an exchange student. And that was a huge awesome. that was a huge thing for me for a lot of reasons. But I remember one of the first homes that I went into um, of a German family. It was a friend of my host family's that the house was so different than any house I had ever been in. It was more of like the kind of Scandinavian minimal kind of very kind of modern and just so different in, in every way, the way the cabinet hardware looked and felt that it made such an impact. I walked in and I just felt like this completely different feeling. Um, what have you, are there any other countries or types of architecture or design that really made an impact on you that was like, whoa, this is, this is different. Cause that I, I'll never forget walking into that house and just like the, the feeling and how different it was. And I was like, oh, this is a home also, but yep. not like any home I've ever like stepped into. Okay. So, so I want to ask you about, um, about the cabinets, but I'll answer your question. Um, my son did a, a, a year of university in Seoul. South Korea. And when you go into properties there, you walk in, the floors are concrete and all the furniture is pushed to the walls. So in the middle is nothing. Hmm. 
And so you're sitting there and you're watching TV and the TV is across the room and you're sitting on this wall and it's just a bizarre. Yeah. It's so, so when you go into hotels, they go, do you want a Korean hotel or an American hotel? And we go, no, we want an American style one. Okay. Now we know what you want. You want a Korean style one. There's nothing in the middle. All the furniture is on the, off to the side. Well, funny. It's, it's weird. Yeah. Um, Okay. Cabinetry, European cabinetry. Do you do much with that? Uh, No, not really. And at the, at the time, what stood out to me and don't quote me, I'm sure this could have been this one family's aesthetic, but it was, it was very like smooth. uh, Like I'd say Ikea, although that sounds cheap. I'm sure it wasn't, but it was like, it was a very light grained wood with like navy blue everywhere in the house, like navy blue uh, painted like um, poles. And it, I, I can't even like think of exactly all the reasons it was so different, but if it, it felt like Ikea kind of, you know, the way I, I think of it, like I said, simple and clean and f- super functional and maybe modern. And I'm from a rural Oregon kind of blue collar family. So that's quite different. It could have been the first time I kind of stepped into a more modern house, but in general, the homes in Germany that I was in were very different. The kitchens, small, very, uh, I don't know, just different than our kitchens, you know, just a kind of a small area with a little built-in eating nook that, that people ate at small refrigerators, small appliances. Um, they would pick up food every day. Basically they'd pick up bread and and meat and, and not store it on site. Um, just quite different than what I was used to. So I, I've got a lot of clients that are, are German cabinet, um, dealers. And, um, that's just German, German engineering is incredible. It's so functional. It's so well thought out. And I didn't really, Nate, understand, okay, well, why would a cabinet maker want to have a German cabinet company that they're representing? Why wouldn't they just make the stuff themselves? Well, because the German stuff is so precise. Not that theirs wasn't, but it was easier to have. um, There's a company called Leicht. Have you ever heard of them? No, but that does sound like a German company. But no, yeah, so you should check them out. So Leicht is, I think it's spelled L-E-I-C-H-T. And they produced okay. last year 650,000 kitchens. Oh, wow. And it's all German, obviously. And their facility is incredible. Uh, I've not been there, but what I've been told, I did a podcast with a guy in... Um, uh, Vancouver, and he's a Leish dealer. And I did one in, I think in Santa Fe, I've got a few of them down in the States that are dealers. And it's just, their stuff is, is so well thought out and it's so meticulous. It makes it pretty bulletproof, but they all have that, that lacquer finish or the, or the, um, um, acrylic finish. And it's all, yeah. Contemporary. And then the, the, uh, a lot of them don't have knobs or poles. They all, you just open it and their lever system inside, the technology is incredible. Hmm. But no, we're, we're seeing more and more of those things in high-end places. There's another company called Pogan Pole. Uh, we've got one of their dealers in Hawaii. Their stuff is magnificent. Hmm. There's a German company that I've been getting to know uh, <laughs> called mix and I met their rep. He sent us a mixer, a tool, and then I met them at the World of Concrete that I went to. It's kind of like a family-run and owned company, and they are amazing. And masonry in Europe is kind of a different animal than what it is in Oregon. You know, okay. for for uh, Germans, um, a, a mixer to mix mortars and muds is is like maybe how we think of like a skill saw. It's like the really? bread and butter tool. Yeah. It's like they're this, that's the tool that the dad, you know, hands down to his son that they've just used. Cause they, they make so much out of masonry and block and such. And anyways, this company described to me when I was meeting, when I met them in Vegas, how, you know, they sell product and work with Germans and also in the U S and they said the Germans are speaking to engineering. They're interested in the specs, the details, the weight, the materials, the size, like, and when you look through their marketing materials or whatever it might be, 
that's what it is. It's like, a, it looks like a spreadsheet. It's like, here's all the facts about our thing. And they described how coming to the US, which they, I think they might've come like 10 years ago or something. They said, it's taken them a while to understand how Americans aren't as interested in the engineering, maybe the nitty gritty. They're yeah. more interested in the narrative or the story of like, how is this tool? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see how it's made. Anyways, what's it going to do? How's it going to change my job side or what's it going to do for me? And so they've had to kind of rethink how they communicate with Americans because Germans, to your point, are very interested in engineering and the nitty gritty of uh, precision in, in all things. I, uh, this podcast I had with this guy in, in uh, Vancouver, it was interesting because this guy's Ukrainian. He's been in Vancouver for 27 years. He is a German cabinet dealer and he's got other stuff, but essentially that. And Nate, I go, uh, okay. And this guy loves cars, loves cars. And I go, explain to me the difference between a German cabinet and an Italian cabinet. And he starts laughing. He goes, okay, I'm going to explain it to you in the, in the, in, with the analogy of cars. He goes, you buy, you go and you buy a Porsche or an Audi or a BMW. And he goes, it is, the design is, is solid. He goes, the technology, you haven't driven it in six months. You go in, you push a button. It starts, starts instantly. It gets you to point A from A to B flawlessly. It's never going to break down. It's bulletproof. He goes, then you go to the Italians. They're all about sexy. They're all about design. He goes, they're beautiful. The, they're elegant. Their lines are clean. They're stunning. He goes, but you go to start it after it's been sitting for six months. You don't know if it's going to start. From <laughs> A to B, you don't know if it's going to get there. But you'll be broken down on the side of the road. And you'll be in one sexy vehicle. <laughs> and he goes, look at Ferrari, Lamborghini, Bugatti, right? Yeah. And I was like, okay, that's a, that's a good analogy. That's really he was funny. Great. Yeah, that's yeah. that's really funny. Well, it's funny to know that that even translates through to the cabinetry and the meticulous engineering that would go into into that kind of thing. So, can you talk about any trends and maybe we'll kind of wrap up on this? Any trends that I don't know, you 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 kind of see a lot of different parts of the country and this high-end building um what builders are working on and what uh clients are interested in. Do you see any kind of trends coming or going or what what's What's interesting that's happening in the country these days in terms of construction? Well, one of the main trends that's been going on for a couple of years through the pandemic is that people are investing more in their houses. They used to be shrinking down the the num the size of the homes and and they would travel. They'd go to Europe, they'd go to Asia, they'd go to Australia, wherever they wanted to go. And then the pandemic hit, nobody could go anywhere. And it didn't matter how much money you had, mm -hmm. right? So, so, um, now all of a sudden they go, huh, well, let's just build a bigger house. So we'll build a bigger house in park city, or we'll build a bigger house in Hawaii so that the kids and the grandkids. So I, I see more generational stuff. Um, that's definitely one of the trends, um, functionality and technology. I definitely see that now all of a sudden I had one client say, the second largest line item expense on the house is now the the um, the brains, you know, the mm. the technology that goes into the house and some of the cool stuff that people put into their homes, you know, the electronic shades, the the windows that pocket, the, mm -hmm. you know, the smart technology where you could be in London and turn on your your thermostat in Scottsdale because you're going to be home tomorrow yeah. and you want it to be cool. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the, speaking of trends, maybe the point is, or at least another angle is with high end and more luxurious, um, construction, I'm sure they spend a lot of time trying to keep it from being trendy and thinking about what's the most timeless and long-term way to build this. So we're always going to love it instead of what is, you know, flashy right now today. That depends on the client. Some yes, some no. Interesting. Um, uh, remember a lot of these people will be in this house for maybe a month out of the year. Oh, so 
Whereas you and I will build a house and it's our forever house or, or it's our home for, it's our main home. Yes. A lot of these places that we do business, clients in Jackson Hole, they might be there a month out of the year. Oh, so got it. they'll, they'll remodel it and won't think twice about dropping half a million dollars and remodeling it. Huh. Whereas the other people, they go, oh, you know, let's, uh, let's kind of plan this one through for the next 10 or 15 years. Yeah. But, huh. but even with that, honestly, Nate, I just think of our house in Broken Top. We, we built it and we built it with conservative, you know, um, uh, solid core doors, granite on the countertops, um, uh, naughty alder cabinets. So, you know, kind of the classic stuff, you know, and after 10 years, it needed a remodel, yeah. which is hard to believe. Yeah. But that's just, and it's not about being trendy. It's just about being, you know, it just, you look at it and you go, okay, well, they're doing things differently now. It's time for a remodel. Yep. Well, uh, Ted, this is amazing. I'm going to link to your podcast because it is, for me, it's really motivational hearing successful people who are maybe living, you know, maybe not living the exact life I would, but in construction, especially people who are successful in building and these particular trades and parts of the industry from architects to vendors and um, uh, everything in between. It's just really motivating to hear the story of how they came to be. And that's what Friends of Build Magazine um, is about, the podcast. And you host that one, so you're on the other side of the mic and you do a great job. So we'll link to that. Anything else where we should be directing our viewers to? No, just you can follow us on social media, obviously, and and whether it be Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Uh, Love you to uh, hopefully people like the, uh, the podcast. And... That's about it. Well, Our goal uh, is to inspire people. That's it. Yeah. And what you've done, Nate, with your business, you give people like me hope in this country because you're not looking for a handout. From what I've, the research I've done on you is you're the real deal. And while it might not be high-end building right now, you're living the American dream and you're a good role model to people that work around you, for you, your subs, because a good solid family, this country would be better if dads were dads. And uh, family values to me are the cornerstone of everything that we do. So I like it when I see people like you and your wife doing what you do. Uh, well, you are very kind. Thank you very much. I'm certainly blessed. And I we tell people all the time, not, not everybody was blessed to have a dad like I did and family, but that doesn't mean you can't be that to your kids or mentor someone else. And so, um, if, even if you didn't have that in your life, doesn't mean you can't, um, correct that and, and be the dad you wish you had, or in my case, be the dad I did have, which is, um, which is a big part of how I got here. So, well, thank you, Ted. We'll link to all your stuff. Uh, can't wait to see uh, who comes next up on your show. I'll be listening and hopefully we'll do this again one of these days. Well, I'd love to have you on our our podcast as well. And when you click off, I want to pick your brain about about your YouTube channel because you've done a great job. (laughs) All right. Sounds good.